Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Our scripture, our scripture this morning will come from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes both of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Uh, and this is God's word. You may be seated. Mistakes were made. This has become a famous line used by politicians and celebrities when they are caught red-handed doing something awful. Mistakes were made. The line has been used so often, there's actually a Wikipedia page devoted to the number of times it's been deployed to get out of serious, unmistakable wrongdoing. The line was used several times by Richard Nixon as he resigned the presidency. Mistakes were made. What mistakes? Who made them? No specifics were offered. Or in 2009, after the economy crashed and U.S. taxpayers bailed out banks with billions of dollars, bank executives still got their multi-million dollar bonuses, even though they were the ones who blew up the economy. Chase CEO Jamie Dimon, when asked to respond how bank executives got millions in bonuses off the backs of taxpayers, even though it was their fault... And Diamond said, mistakes were made. 
What is obvious to us that what Jamie Dimon and Richard Nixon said was a ridiculous thing to say is never obvious to the person saying mistakes were made. Because either they believe that phrase is sufficient for the damage they have done, or more likely, they do not really believe they have done anything wrong. How can that happen? How can something so obviously ridiculous to those hearing it, mistakes were made, make perfect sense to the person saying it? How does that happen? My answer is self-deception. We're in the third week of unpacking the idea of sin. Maybe you're tired of hearing Genesis 3 read week after week. But we're in this series to unpack an idea our culture finds distasteful. But this morning I suspect we'll find some common ground with our culture. This idea that sin is self-deception. But here's what concerns me. If Jamie Dimon could do it, he seems like a pretty smart guy, then I could probably do it. Deceive myself. I could be unable or refuse to see things about myself that are obvious to other people. And if it's true about politicians, celebrities, and it's true about me, could it be true about you? Could there be things about your life, who you are, that you quickly dismiss with the phrase, mistakes were made, when in reality the the problem is, is much more significant than you are willing to admit? Uh, So let's start here this morning by being precise with the question, what is self-deception? What is self-deception? Well, the place we've been meditating on the idea of sin has been Genesis 3, a story that is, in part, a command about a tree. And in this command about a tree, which may seem very strange to us, we learn something about ourselves. And the place where we first get the command is, is Genesis 2, 15, or 16 and 17. So I want to read it because we often get this command wrong. Verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day of you, eat, you eat of it you shall surely die. So first, and this is so important, God's first word is, don't do that. His first word is actually, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And so much of our life, we get to obey that word from God. Every time you've eaten into a a juicy orange, every time you have drank coffee, bit into a crisp apple on a fall day, you are experiencing the generous, gracious hand of God who didn't give us food pills we swallow for energy, but he filled this world with rich and good fruit and said, take it up and eat. But second, God does say, there is one tree you cannot eat from. And if you eat from that tree, in that day you will die. And that command's important because the serpent deceives Eve about that command. He, uh, it tells her that if you eat that, that fruit, you will not die. And its deception works. Verse 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes... 
She took of its fruit and ate, and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now there's a couple things happening there. The first is Eve is, is playing God. If you were to go to Genesis 1 and read all the way through Genesis 1, there's a phrase that repeats itself. And God saw something and then said it was good. And here you see Eve seeing the tree and calling it good. The irony being that Eve sees what will kill her and calls it good. She desires what will harm her. And that's the first way self-deception works in us. We desire what will harm us. We call good what is not good. We deceive ourselves. We cannot see clearly. And we desire what will actually bring us harm. And so one of the most powerful questions we can ask ourselves as human beings is, what do I desire? What do I want? You see Jesus asking that question frequently of people. What do you want? But here's the trouble with that question. I doubt any of the bank executives in 2009 uh, who took billions in bonuses from, or millions in bonuses from taxpayers would ever answer the question, what do you want? I want to be rich on the backs of the poor. No one would ever say that, but that's what they did. Often the question, what do I want, can be a place of great self-deception. We're not honest about what we really want. Or we don't know what we really want. And so we need to go further into the idea of of self-deception. It starts with, what do you desire? What do you want? Uh, But it goes further. So how do we then begin to practice self-deception together? How do we come to a place where we desire what will harm us, where we want uh, what actually will bring death to us, to those around us, to our own community? One of the most powerful passages on self-deception in all the Bible is Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And there Jesus is talking about religious leaders, uh, pastors basically, religious leaders who were skilled in the art of self-deception. And Jesus begins this little passage by saying to his disciples, Beware of practicing righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then he gives them three examples. First, he says, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet. Which is like, did people do that? Yes, we still do it. The giant checks. You need to know how much I'm giving you. So I can't just give someone a check. I have to blow it up so you can see how much I'm giving to the poor or the vulnerable, that, that religious people did this. What mattered to them was that you saw their generosity to the poor. Then Jesus says, when you pray, don't yell out your prayers on the streets. Then Jesus says, when you fast, don't paint your face so you look sick and hungry and miserable. Just fast. Why does Jesus say this? Well, he's clear on that. He repeats a phrase throughout this section where he says, people who pray and fast and give to the poor in public demonstrations, he says, they have received their reward. People who draw attention to their generosity to the poor, to to their prayer life, to their fasting, they have received their reward. Well, what does that mean? 
Well, what they cared about, what they wanted, was not to know the Father, to live in connection to God, not to serve the Father. It was to cultivate an image, to create an, impar- an appearance. They were interested not in the Father, but in cultivating an image that, that I'm a good religious person. And that's one of our strategies of self Deception, we deceive ourselves through image cultivation. You just walk around the United States, our culture today, and it's immediate, uh, immediately evident we live in a culture full of people with PhDs in image cultivation. Social media, ongoing news feeds of, of image cultivation where we only let other people see what we want them to see. I remember uh, first signing up for Facebook and meticulously choosing my profile. What are my favorite TV shows? Movies? What are my fa- who are my favorite musicians? I wasn't vulnerable or honest about that. Favorite musician? Taylor Swift? No chance. Shaking that idea right off. Metallica? I want to be a pastor. That might be a little intense for some people. Uh, Wilco. No one's heard of them. That's safe. <laughs> Image cultivation. This, this type of living, which we all embrace, has two, two realities. The first is the, the image we cultivate will never include what is truly wrong with us. It's why when we're caught, our response is mistakes were made. That's an image cultivation statement. I, wanna, I want you to know I, I'm aware I'm not who I should be, but I'm not going to tell you how. I've been uh, reading a little book called uh, Upside Down Spirituality, and in it the author tells a story of, of desiring to steal all the keys in his father's mechanic shop. Not because he wanted to steal any of the cars, he just wanted the keys to the whole shop. Every car, every closet. Uh, So he and a friend of his broke into the shop one night, and while they're sitting uh, in one of the cards that his dad was working on, another another mechanic stumbles into the shop, and they're caught red-handed, sitting in the car with the keys. And the mechanic asks him, what are you doing? And the the thing the author immediately said was, I was trying to fix the car. (laughs) Image cultivation. The attempt to make sin appear as goodness. And we're always doing this, covering over what is wrong with us by trying to appear better than we are. It's why Martin Luther, the theologian and reformer, said this. We see that sin is and acts the same everywhere. It does not want to be sin. It does not want to be punished because of sin. It wants to be righteousness. What he's saying is, even when we're doing wrong, We spin it so that, no, we're actually doing good. So even when we're caught up or caught red-handed, we cultivate the image of what's wrong with us to actually be good. So Richard Nixon, when he resigned, said, I was only doing what I thought was in the best interest of the nation. Okay. We make up excuses. We justify our actions. We blame the people around us. And if those attempts fail, then we just say, well, at least I'm not bad as as this guy over here. The one thing we will not do is treat our sin 
as sin. That what's really wrong with us is often obvious to the people around us. We can deceive ourselves, but we rarely deceive everyone around us. And what, when what is wrong with us becomes clear, rather than being honest, we wrap it in righteousness. I was fixing the car. I was really doing this for others. Well, at least I'm better than that guy over there. None of which has anything to do with the mistakes that were made. So that's the first way we image cultivate. We will never include in our image cultivation what's truly wrong with us. But the other cost of image cultivation is that we compartmentalize ourselves. The Canadian novelist Sylvia Fraser has talked at length about her life growing up in a home that was very uh, Christian fundamentalist. and um, She suffered uh, enormous Uh, physical and other types of abuse at the hands of her father, a self-professing, very conservative Christian. And she kept that secret for most of her life. And so her father's funeral was a very jarring experience for her. She heard other people describe her father as a good Christian man who who never smoked or drank, who helped with the grocery shopping, who never took the the Lord's name in vain, kept the snow shoveled, his leaves raked, his bills paid And while he's doing those things, he's abusing and threatening his daughter that she dare not tell anyone the abuse he was putting her through. I mean, how is that possible? To meticulously never take the Lord's name in vain and at the same time be abusing your own child. This is an extreme example, obviously, but I would imagine everyone in this room at some point when someone told us that something we've done harmed them or was hurtful or was wrong, our response was by telling them about the good things we've done. Which have nothing to do with what they just addressed to us. But what we say is, well, I'm good over here, so therefore we're not going to talk about what's wrong over here. I keep my bills paid, so don't, don't tell me about my language. I, I've never used the Lord's name in vain, so don't t- tell me about my anger problem. And we think because we live well in one area, we can overlook the evidence of sin and evil in other areas. We can ignore it and suppress it. And so we deceive ourselves through image cultivation, compartmentalizing what's, what's wrong with us and covering it over by areas in which we're good in other parts of our, our lives. We deceive ourselves through image cultivation. The other area we deceive ourselves, and I've I've just been speaking to it, is we deceive ourselves through religion. Which is the most powerful way to compartmentalize. It's why M. Scott Peck, a psychologist, a Christian, who wrote a book on evil, had this to say about the topic. Since the primary motive of evil is disguise, one of the places evil people are most likely to be found is within the church. What better way to conceal one's evil from oneself as well as from others, than to be a deacon or, or some other highly, form, highly visible form of Christian. And that, of course, that's exactly what Jesus is describing in Matthew 6. The religious leaders who were cultivating an image that they were dynamic prayers, dynamic fasters, that they were generous to the poor, when actually they had no interest in God. Which is why Jesus says to his disciples, what matters more than the image you're cultivating to other people is who you are in the secret place when it's just you and the Father. It's what Jesus repeatedly calls 
his disciples too in Matthew 6. Your generosity before the Father, your prayer life before the Father, your fasting before the Father. Because religion can often lead us to think, well, I'm one of the good people. I go to church. I'm in Bible studies. And then we refuse any evidence to the contrary. It's why Cornelius Plantinga, a Christian philosopher, in his book on sin, writes, When we are most religious, we may be at most risk of losing touch with God. After all, how many believers really believe in God as opposed to some deified image of themselves? That we come to worship not the Father, but ourselves. Which raises the question, well, how do we know the difference? How do we begin to to uncover and free ourselves from a life of self-deception? That's a really important question, so let's, let's end there together. How do we become a people of the truth? Well, first, we must submit to a community. And this is important, but it is complicated. Because on the one hand, there are times to leave a spiritual community, a church. When a church abandons historic Christian orthodoxy, it's time, it's time to leave. In my own life, when I began to see a church practicing deception and spin, concealing sin and the truth, I had to leave. And that was very disorienting to me. So that, th- this is the trouble, is to submit yourself to a community and then to find out its, its interest is not the heart of the Father will be one of the most disorienting disillusioning experiences you could go through. To have leaders in the name of Jesus uh, sin and practice self-deception themselves is incredibly disorienting. So this, when I say you must submit to a community, I recognize this is, we're on dangerous territory here. But the answer to the problems of some communities cannot be to stay isolated as individuals. Because on the one hand, now many Christians leave a church when we just don't like something. We've created churches as communities of preference, which guarantees a life of self-deception. I think that was good. I'm going to say it again. We have created churches as communities of preference, which guarantees you will live in self-deception. Because could someone in the church see something in you that, that might be wrong, and they say it to you, and then you don't leave. As a pastor, almost every conversation like that, people just left and gone to the next church. That does not mean that when others address us, they're always right in the flaws that they might see in us. And it does not mean they will speak in the tone of the Father, that the way he would speak to you, the way we see him speaking to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. But do you believe the people around you in this community see things in you that you don't see yourself yet? Because if the answer to that is no, then you're practicing self-deception. And if the answer is yes, then that means you would, you would invite the possibility of someone speaking to you what they see that you might not. The only person you are submitted to is yourself. It is very likely you are self-deceived and you have a vision of God that is more a deified version of yourself than the living, breathing, holy trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And like I said... I. I know this can be abused by churches. And so while we must submit to a community to be a people of the truth, 
we as a community have to have two other things true about us so that we're not, as a community, practicing self-deception. That to become a people of the truth, uh, second, we must become a community of confession. But confession is hard, isn't it? Because if I confess my sins, the question becomes, what will you do with them? And it's why we practice image cultivation in the church and religion. Why we cover up what's wrong with us. Because we're unsure how people will respond once they know who we really are. And it's why you find Adam and Eve hiding in Genesis 3. They're hiding from God. They sow fig leaves together to hide from one another. That whatever eating the tree meant for them, it definitely meant they could no longer be truthful about who they are to one another or to God. They now must practice self-deception. They must create masks to keep parts of themselves hidden from God and from others. So how do we leave that reality and become a community of Confession. And the first thing is all of us, first and foremost, must deal with our own sins far more than we deal with the sins of other people. I love the way G.K. Chesterton put this about him reckoning with what is wrong with him, which he described as foolishness. He wrote, and all of us should probably write this in our Bibles and live this to the day we die. He writes, No reader can accuse me here of trying to make a fool of him. I am the fool of the story, and no rebel shall hurl me from my throne. <laughs> That is deeply Christian. I am the fool of my own story. And no one's going to take pride of place in that role from my story. But maybe you hear that and that sounds a little depressing. But that depends because it depends on what happens next. When I'm honest about myself, that I'm the fool of my own story, that there are real things wrong with me that need to be dealt with, that is only depressing depending on what God does next in response. So what does God do in response? In Genesis 3, all he does is come asking questions. Where are you? Who told you that? What have you done? Those are pretty powerful questions. And they're all an invitation into confession. And you never see God shaming Adam and Eve at all in Genesis 3. And take that off into the rest of the scriptures and you will not find God shaming sinners who confess themselves as such before him. And one of the highest examples of that is Psalm 32. A psalm that invites us to be a person of confession. Now listen to what happens to a person who comes honestly before the Lord in confession the psalmist writes, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't hide it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my sin. This is the best part. The best part. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So here's the sinner. Confesses themselves as such. The Lord says, once you come and hide in me, I'm going to keep you from further trouble. And now I'm going to surround you with shouts of deliverance. That when we stop hiding from God, stop living into self-deception, stop hiding from others by practicing image cultivation, what does the Father offer us? 
Forgiveness. He becomes where we hide, not in false created images of ourselves that we don't believe and no one else does either. The confession is the pathway out of a life of self-deception. Not the confession, mistakes were made. No, I did not cover my iniquity. I am the fool of my life. And when I confess, the Father never meets us to shame us in that place, but to cover our shame, to become our hiding place, to set us free from the lies we tell ourselves. And if all that's true, then it is true. That leads me to the last thing we need to be, to be a people of the truth. That to be a people of the truth, we must desire the Father. Now, what do you want? I mean really want. And what is the way you're living your life suggests that you want? Your way above all other ways. Power for people to do what you want them to do. Well, security, safety. What, what do you really want? Because all those paths are a, they're a path to self-deception. And there's only one path to be freed of self-deception. To know who you truly are. And that is to desire the Father. As Augustine brilliantly prayed. Let me know you, God. Oh, you who know me, then I shall, shall know even as I am known. What Augustine is praying is that he may know the Father, because when he knows the Father, then he can know himself. He can cut through the lies, the deception, the false ways of living. Augustine's saying, when I know God, I know myself. And when you seek to know God like this, it's freeing. Because all other types of living, it's trying to spin God, cultivating an image with God, but you, it doesn't work. You can't compartmentalize yourself with God. He sees all of you, everything you've done, said, and thought. I can't spin the Father. And the beauty is, we don't have to. He knows everything about me and you and is willing to receive us anyway. Then my whole story can be known by him, and he loves me anyway. And that makes self-deception totally unnecessary. That when you believe the gospel, you don't need to deceive yourself or others anymore. Because what you're trying to deceive them from is irrelevant. That if you've never read uh, The Wingfeather Saga by Andrew Peterson, you need to. It's primarily targeted at, at teens and, and kids, but this grown man loved it, and you should too. And one of the best characters is uh, Poto Helmer. He's an old sailor, a grandfather, but someone who throughout the story keeps alluding to a dark past he wants to forget. And so you grow to love his courage, his humor, his passion. But at the end of the second book, we find out about Poto Helmer's dark past. And it's humiliating for him. And he almost dies. But miraculously, he, he lives. And then we read these words about him after he's saved and his dark past is recovered. Uh, he moved through the days in peace and wonder, for his whole story had been told for the first time. And he found that he was still loved. Do you know why at root we, we can't tell the truth about ourselves? Why we deceive ourselves? Because we fear if our whole story gets told, we will not be loved. And so we hide. Cultivate an image that, that can be loved. 
All the while the Father says to us, I know your whole story. You can't hide it from me. And I so love you, my own son has entered into this world, gone into a cross, gone into a grave, has been raised into new life that you might be too. Your whole story, whatever it is, whatever it includes, is already known by the Father and you are still loved. So church, let's free ourselves of self-deception. Let's tell our whole stories because we are still loved by the Father. Let me pray. Father, the irony of self-deception is we don't know we're doing it, and we can't see it. And so I just, I just pray for a space of graciousness and kindness and peace. Now here is maybe the Spirit has done some work in our own hearts and lives in the last few minutes. And I pray against the, the, all this, the evil one wants to do is accuse and shame, and that is not, that is not your work, Father. Your work is uncovering to bring us out into the light that our whole stories may be known, that we might be loved. So now I pray as we, as we sing, as we prepare to take communion here in a few minutes, God, bring our whole stories out into the light, that we might look on the cross, the work of Jesus, and see complete and total love by you in light of our whole stories. Father, do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.